The reading is Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. And this can be found on page 1113 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back of church. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do sit down. And uh, we're going to have a look at those uh, verses that were read for us. Uh, we're back in Athens. Uh, as Jack said, last week uh, we were there in um, our Bible reading and developing really this week some of the things we saw last week. If you weren't here, uh, this will make sense as a, a standalone episode as well. Uh, but we're staying in Athens and then next week hopping off to Corinth. And uh, who knows where after that? Well, uh, Ephesus, because uh, that's what it says right here. But um, uh, Athens uh, for this week. Should we pray together as we come back to God's word? Our Father, we would uh, indeed uh, behold you and uh, worship you as we've sung. And so we ask that as we uh, come to your word, you would speak to us. You'd show us yourself more clearly. You would uh, fill our hearts again with uh, praise and worship for you, our holy God and our Father. Amen. 
Uh, so we've been uh, looking at Acts over the last uh, few weeks and uh, the next few, and uh, this uh, little section is slightly unusual in the book of Acts in that uh, for, uh, the Apostle Paul gets handed the microphone and uh, free for a whole three paragraphs to speak uh, what he wants to say. Uh, quite a lot of the book of Acts, and especially this section that we're in, the, the sort of teens of Acts, we hear lots of other people's uh, reactions to Jesus and to Christianity. We see opposition, we see some people following, we see some people confused and and not knowing what to do. We see lots of different reactions, but it's not so often that we just get a chance to hear uh, one of the Christian leaders speak and sort of, here's a microphone, what do you want to say? And uh, this is one of those opportunities this morning, and uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to listen uh, to Paul, what does he want to say to Athens? What does he want to say into a, a pluralistic city? Uh, in some ways, very unlike Manchester. In some ways, some resonances there, what he might want to say here. And uh, we'll be uh, coming to that from different places. Uh, we've uh, mentioned that um, uh, there's a team in North Africa at the moment visiting uh, one of our mission partners there. Uh, today, the team for the uh, Manchester International Outreach are gathering uh, some training stuff today, a commissioning this evening uh, for a couple of weeks of trying to get to know uh, international students arriving in Manchester and uh, get to know them and uh, connect them in with different uh, places where they'll find uh, friends and make links and and speak a little of Jesus. For those sort of obviously missionary type activities, this will say something. What might Paul say if he were in North Africa or meeting an international student uh, in Manchester? Obviously, for lots of us, won't be involved in those sort of activities. But for some of us, we'll be places tomorrow where there are people that we'd long to know and hear and see something of what we've found and enjoyed in Jesus. But the the bridge between here and there seems so far. And Paul might give us something to help us think, how might we uh, speak of Jesus in those sort of places? Of course, I'm well aware there'll be people here who wouldn't call yourself a Christian at all. That's true every uh, Sunday here. And uh, you're very welcome. And I hope you feel uh, very welcome here and able to enjoy Perhaps find something slightly bewildering, uh, but you're very welcome here. And a chance, I guess, for you to, to listen in. We hand Paul the microphone. What does he want to say, perhaps, to you? And a chance for you to, to hear that and uh, work out what you make of it. But we're handing Paul the microphone and uh, seeing what he wants to say to Athens and maybe to us. And uh, one of the big things we'll see is that Paul, as he's speaking, he works to get under the skin of the people that he's talking to. He gets under their skin. We saw a bit of this uh, last week if you were here. He doesn't come and say, well, I'm right and you're wrong. So shut up and listen to me. He doesn't say that. What he comes is he says, can I show you some of the ways that you already know that something's wrong? That you already feel some tensions and that things don't quite fit together. Right from the very beginning, he says, "Uh, people of Athens... I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. See, he says to them, you know, like in your own uh, altars, your own temples, you, you know, you're on record saying, we don't have the full picture, there's something missing. And I want to help you fill it in. And he goes on in that kind of track, trying to get under the skin and expose some of the the tensions and the inconsistencies in their thinking. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, 
he does not live in temples made by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He said, God isn't served by us. God doesn't need us. Uh, You're here thinking, you know, we need to build a temple for God. He needs somewhere to live. No, no, no. Uh, God made the earth for us to live, and it's the other way around. You're here thinking God needs us to to serve him and provide for him, uh, feed him with the sacrifices we bring. No, no, it's the other way around. It's God who gives us life and breath and everything else. You think God needs us uh, to, to serve him, support him, prop him up. It's the other way around. You've got your thinking upside down, says Paul. Now, uh, it wouldn't look exactly the same in Manchester, but it might be that some of those same dynamics are still true today. That sense that uh, the, the things that we uh, worship, the gods, uh, need us, and uh, we, uh, we have to serve them. I'm going to stop talking about last week after this, but one last time, if you'll forgive me. Uh, if you were here, um, Paul quoted David Foster Wallace, uh, non-Christian thinker, uh, speaking and, and making the point that Paul makes here that everyone worships something, maybe some sort of God spiritual thing, maybe uh, something else, but everyone worships, pursues for, strives, depends on something. And uh, Foster Wallace's observation is that the things we worship will eat us alive. That was his phrase, they eat us alive. Because whether it is uh, success at work or a family, raising a family, whether it's uh, beauty, uh, whether it's wealth, whether it's uh, the perfect holidays, uh, those things will never feel like we have enough, and so we have to keep feeding them. We have to keep feeding them, and keep feeding them, and keep striving for them, and keep serving them, and we have to keep feeding them, even feeding them ourselves. They'll eat us alive, is uh, his observation. That we have to serve these things that we worship. More in the uh, religious sphere. Uh, recently, my, uh, my wife, Emma, was having a conversation with a friend who's a Muslim uh, who said, I'm sorry, I need to go and get home to pray, uh, the friend said, um, because I have to get it done by this time because that's, when, that's the point in the day when the angels stop making their record of good deeds and bad deeds and sort of send that report into heaven. And so if I don't hit that deadline, then, then for this day, my bad deeds might outweigh my good deeds. And Emma asked her, uh, good friend. They, they uh, talk about real things. Do you find that scary? Yeah, I'm terrified. Is her answer. I'm terrified that I get to the end and find that I've just missed the boat and bad deeds outweigh good deeds. This sense that uh, the, the gods, the things we worship, the things we depend on, need to be fed and served and provided for and eventually will eat us alive. That's how they thought in Athens. Paul says, you've got it upside down. But what's fascinating is he doesn't say, you've got it upside down, and the way I know that is that the Bible says so, which the Bible does say that God made everything and doesn't need us uh, to serve him and provides everything for us. But that's not what Paul says. What Paul says is, you've got it upside down, and I think you already know that. Uh, uh, From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they'd seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we're his offspring. 
Paul doesn't say you're wrong because the Bible says so. He says, I think you already know you're wrong because your own poets and your thinkers and your philosophers say so. You have this idea, and if you've got a Bible, there's footnotes telling us it's Epimenides and Aratus, uh, the philosophers that are being quoted, uh, Greek philosophers. Um, in, in him, we live and move and have our being. He sustains us. That's what your philosophers say, that God sustains us. Why do you act as though you need to sustain your gods? Building them temples, providing them with food. Uh, Aratus says, uh, we are his offspring. That's how you think. And so, since we're God's offspring, we shouldn't think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. That just sort of doesn't make sense. If we're God's offspring, then, and we're building God out of silver or stone, that, sort of, that just doesn't work. So he's getting under their skin and exposing, not just saying, well, you're wrong and I'm right, but there, there are ways in which you're inconsistent. And you believe this and you believe this. And can you see they just don't fit together? Now, that may well have been irritating, but can you see it's a different approach from you're wrong and I'm right, shut up and listen to me. He gets under the skin. Now, uh, in Manchester, in the 21st century, we have a slightly different skin than uh, they did then. And so, you know, these things aren't uh, what's in vogue around the place in quite the same way. Um, What might it look like today? And indeed, there's a, there's a difference. Paul here is speaking to a large crowd, and so his approach is, uh, sort of by necessity, to, to um, expose these things for them. And just as he's speaking to say, do you see that this and that don't fit together? You, you believe this, but you live like that. Do you see they don't fit together? There's a different model in the Gospels, where you see Jesus individually with people, one-to-one. He does this same thing just largely just by asking questions. And not even himself always drawing out the conclusions, but just helping people to see, I believe that and I do that. I hold this and I hold this, but they don't fit together. And any one of us would be able to do that. Just to ask questions. And help people to start to see some of the places where things don't quite fit together and don't quite make sense. Questions like, do you find that scary? Questions like, what do you think the answer is to this thing we've just been talking about? Questions like, how do you know that? Questions to help I mean, it's, uh, us think more clearly about what we believe and what we do and why we believe and why we do and whether those things fit together. Uh, Paul, he got under the people's skin. He started to show there is an itch here that you've not quite been able to scratch. There are things that don't, the puzzle doesn't quite fit together. Maybe I can help you with that in what I'm bringing, what I'm preaching. He gets under their skin. And then secondly, more briefly, in just a couple of sentences, he confronts them with Jesus. He confronts them with Jesus. Now, I'm using that word confront, partly because, as we read it in a second, it's pretty confrontational, what he says. But there is a sense in which, speaking about Jesus, it, it always feels a little, it raises the stakes. Uh, years ago, I heard an evangelist speak, someone whose job it was to speak to people who aren't Christians about Jesus, uh, so individually and, and big groups. And uh, I remember uh, him speaking, and the thing that stuck with me is he said in, in a conversation, there comes a point where it's time to cross the pain line and mention Jesus. Now, that was his job. 
uh, was to do that. And he still found that it was one thing to talk about God, to talk about faith, to talk about church. And those were things that people could sort of broadly, lots of people happily sort of talk about. And I've got an opinion, you've got an opinion, we talk about those things. But when he spoke about Jesus, it just raised the stakes and upped the tension. Because Jesus is annoyingly specific and particular and demands a response. Paul, having got under their skin, he confronts them with Jesus. In the past, he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. I'm just going to look at this backwards. I think uh, Paul's argument, his logic kind of works in reverse. So we'll go backwards, and I think it'll make uh, a little more sense. The last thing he says is that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And that is the foundation of what he's going to say to the people in Athens, that God's raised Jesus from the dead. Now, I'm well aware that many of us will be thinking, sorry, what? In the 21st century, even talking about someone being raised from the dead is crazy, let alone suggesting it might be the foundation for any kind of argument. I'm, I'm well aware of that. Uh, it's what Paul did. It was the foundation of his argument. Let me just throw in uh, one thing into that thought. Uh, in, in a previous church, uh, my vicar was a historian by training, and uh, what he used to say was, uh, three E's, uh, sort of like an episode of Sesame Street, uh, three E's that you have to take into account when you're thinking about what happened in the first century. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Uh, the first is that the testimony was early. So here Paul speaking in Athens, 51 AD, they think. So less than 20 years after Jesus died and maybe rose again. Paul had been preaching for a while by this point. Others before him, before he'd become a follower of Jesus. So the testimony was early. We're not talking about hundreds of years later. The tomb was empty. The second day, the tomb was empty. Uh, anyone could have killed the Jesus movement you know, in AD 51. Uh, Jesus risen from the dead. No, there he is. Uh, that would have been it. The tomb was empty. And then thirdly, the change was extraordinary. What happened to Jesus' disciples, who in the hours before his death were just this timid, terrified, scattered group of people, I, I don't even know him, to a few days later, out in the streets of Jerusalem, preaching his resurrection, enduring threats and beatings, and some of them murdered for it. The testimony was early, the tomb was empty, the change was extraordinary. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, it would explain those three things. And any other suggestion has to explain those three things as well. Now, it might be you think there's another way of, of piecing it together, that, but it has to fit in those three things. And Paul would say, well, Jesus rose from the dead. That's the, the, the bottom of his argument. We'll see, not everyone was persuaded, but for him, that was the, the base of his argument. Let me work back slightly. Paul says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Jesus rising from the dead proves that God will judge the world, Paul says, with justice, it'll be fair, by the man he's appointed. That judgment will be in the hands of no one other than Jesus. Jesus' resurrection proves that one day he will judge the world, says Paul. And then there's sort of uh, the, the climax of his argument, uh, the, the top layer. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
4, he's set a day when he'll judge the world. So Jesus risen from the dead is proof that Jesus will judge the world. And therefore, God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn, to change. That's what that word means, to repent. In the past, he overlooked such ignorance. Uh, Before now, says Paul, before Jesus rose from the dead, the nations all had their own different views of God and life, and God sort of let that slide. But now that Jesus has risen from the dead, this proof of who God is, God says, time's up on that. Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. He says in Athens, and he says in Manchester, that if our vision of God and our vision of life doesn't include that Jesus rose and will... In fact, if our vision of God and our vision of life isn't founded on and centred on Jesus died and rose and will judge, then God says that has to change. God commands all people everywhere to repent. He says, time's up on that. I've risen Jesus. I've proved it. Has to stop. Now, I'm aware that's pretty blunt. Paul confronts people with Jesus. It is pretty blunt, and there's no way I can pretend that it isn't. That's how Paul speaks. Uh, it is worth just looking at the reactions at the end. I think that helps us understand something of the, uh, the tone and the context and how Paul says it, what he expects to happen in saying it, just so we're hearing him rightly. It, it won't stop it being blunt, but it might stop us mishearing. Uh, there, there's sort of two reactions that happen. Uh, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So some of them sneered. Because in the first century, as well as the 21st, it's not that they used to be gullible and think people rose from the dead all the time. They'd been to enough funerals. Uh, there are people that sneered. And what did Paul do to them? Uh, he yelled at them? No. He chased them down the streets? No. Uh, he bullied them into following Jesus? No. Paul left the council. Some people sneered, and Paul didn't chase after them. He didn't hound them down. He didn't threaten them. He didn't yell at them. Some people sneered, and he's okay with that. So Paul is being blunt, and he's putting out the truth and saying, this is true, and it demands a response. But he will let people respond as they will. He's not threatened by it. He's not going to pressure them on it. Some sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So again, even though Paul's speaking bluntly, it's not like you're not allowed to think about it. Here it is. Here's the pitch. Sign up right now. Uh, There's ongoing discussion. We want to talk more about this. We want to understand more. Is that really true? Does it really mean? So Paul is blunt. He's confrontational. And to be honest, from beginning to end, the Bible is. But it's not going to force people uh, to respond in a certain way. It's not going to pressure people into responding right now today. Some sneered. Others wanted to hear more, and Paul's okay with both of those. Some of the people, presumably sometime later after this ongoing discussion, some people became followers of Paul and believed. Dionysus, Damaris, and uh, some others, unnamed others. And so there's Paul in Athens. Hand him a microphone for three paragraphs. He can do quite a lot uh, in in three paragraphs. What about today? What would Paul do if he were... Uh, on that plane, or they've now now landed in North Africa, what would he do if he were on the streets of Manchester in the next couple of weeks meeting uh, international students? 
in some of the places that will be tomorrow, what would he do? Well, I guess it's this. He'd look to get under the skin, to understand what is it that makes people tick? Why are people working, living, believing, leisuring the way that they are? Where are there some inconsistencies? He'd work to understand that, to maybe start to just put a finger on some of those pressure points. And then at some point, he'd cross that pain line and talk about Jesus, confront people with Jesus. And what would he expect? He'd expect some people to sneer. He'd hope that some people would want to talk more. He'd hope that eventually some people would believe and uh, follow Jesus. Uh, For us, what do you make of that? Here's Paul. Was it a mistake to give him a microphone? Uh, How are you feeling about him being uh, blunt? Whether he'd call himself a Christian or not. Uh, What do you make of what he's saying to us? Maybe what he's saying to you.